ahead and pray and let's get into the word. I really believe the Lord has a very timely word for us here today. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you so much for today, Lord. I just, we have another day. We have breath in our lungs. We have strength in our bones. And we have your spirit inside of our, our hearts just boiling up. And Lord God, I just ask you right now that you're going to speak into us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I have been praying and praying all week as we've been preparing for this Sunday here. That I've been praying for the Issachar anointing, and uh, I, I know that sounds kind of crazy for some of you, but Issachar was the tribe of Israel that it is said of them that they knew the times, and they knew the seasons, and they knew what to do, and I've just really been praying for that, and I really believe that uh, this word that I have for you here today that I'm going to bring forth from the Lord, I'm just the mere messenger, uh, is one to direct us in those, the, those directions of what is the right time and season. I believe that God wants you to know very strongly right now that he has many facets. There's many, many facets to God and who he is. Um, and once we kind of figure out, think we, we kind of have God figured out, uh, there's a shift. And now we see him from a different direction. Uh, I've, I know I brought this to you before, but it's kind of like Mount Rainier. You know, uh, from my house, Mount Rainier looks a certain way. It has a certain shape and, and contour. But I tell you, you go over to Ellensburg and you look at Mount Rainier, or you go down south and you look at Mount Rainier, it has a different shape to it. It has different facets to it. Same mountain. Mountain has never changed. There's just facets that you see that, that from different angles, you can see different things. And, and that's how God is. And I believe that in every season, we have to understand all of God, not just the sliver of God, the, the angle that we see it at right now. And so uh, that's what I really want to bring to us. Um, and I want you to know that out of all of these facets, I'm going to list a few. I, I don't, you know, boast to know all of them. But out of all of these facets, God does every single one of them perfectly, perfectly. And that's the difference between him and us. We have portions of this inside of us, but we don't do them perfectly. God does every single one perfectly within each other. So what is God? God, one of the facets of God is God is good. And that's been our message here. It seems like across the body here recently, God is a good God. He is a good, good father who loves us and brings good to us at all times. God is good, and this is true, and he does good well. He does it perfect. He does good well. He's full of grace. God is grace. And he does grace really well. He does grace perfectly. Not sloppy, not wrong. He does grace perfectly. He does mercy perfectly. He does compassion completely. He does love like you can't believe. He does love perfectly. He does faithfulness perfectly. He does healing. He is a healer and he heals perfectly. He is a redeemer and he is also peace, perfect peace. God is also just. He's also the judge. He also knows how to bring judgment and all of those things he does perfectly. He does them perfectly. And he does them when he, when he is uh, good and when he is love. He does all of them with everything within that thing. And I know I'm kind of messing with you now. When he does good, he does it justly. He does it rightly. 
When he is acting in his justice, in his justness, in his judging, he does it with love and mercy and grace and perfection in all the other facets at the same time. So we have to know that when we are exalting God for his goodness, at the same time, in his goodness resides everything else inside of him. In his goodness, in his perfection, also resides his justice. So within justice, the word just means knowing right and wrong and setting wrongs right. To have a God who is a just God, he has a very strong understanding of what is righteous and what is unrighteous, what is good and what is not good. And he has this uncanny ability to set it right. And I've, I know I've spoken to our people here before that justice is always kind of seen visually in our, in, in our world as a set of, of, of scales, balances. And a just judge, a just court brings things that are out of balance into balance. And God does that perfectly. And he does it with perfect love and perfect grace and perfect mercy. But he wouldn't be perfect in love, grace, and mercy if he wasn't perfect in justice as well. He has to be perfect in all of it. All of it. Now God... Before creation, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were so unified in their love with one another that they desired to have more. And in the midst of that, they decided to create, to create the world, to create everything that we have around us, and to create you and I, to create humanity. And it came out of his incredible love and desire for relationship. And we humans were the apex of that creation. And we stand in his image and his likeness. We are God's image bearers in this world. And along with that image comes the fact that we have been given a free will. See, God's image, in God's image, God, he has a free will. He can choose things. He has decision-making abilities. And he, go, he has the ability to make choices, and he put that in us. What a gift, what an amazing gift. Why though, why? Because we have so many of us have chosen wrong. We've chosen to harm each other. We've chosen to murder. We've chosen to yell and scream and curse. And we've chosen to steal and, and to be rebellious. We have chosen all those things. Why did he give this to us? Why did he give us this option? Because true love has to have a choice. True love has to have a choice. If there isn't a choice to love another, then when I choose to love you, it wasn't true love. It wasn't something that was chosen. It would have been something that was forced. So when God created Adam and Eve, mankind, he put them in the garden and he said, the, everything was good. Everything was perfect. Everything had, had his touch and his kiss of perfection all around. There was nothing wrong. There was nothing out of order. There was no sin. There was no death. There was no brokenness. There was nothing. It was perfection all the way around. And God gave him one choice. He put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. He said, you can have everything. 
everything else. But the choice I need you to make, the choice that's going to prove to me that you love me, the choice that says that, that you, I'm giving you, that is going to say that I am your God and that we are in a love relationship. The choice that I'm going to put is this tree and I'm going to say out of all the whole world, just, just don't, don't eat that one. Just don't do that one. The knowledge of good and evil. Don't do that one. Because I don't want you to take of the knowledge of evil. At this point, Adam and Eve only had the knowledge of good and a choice. And God said, you, if everything, everything, and if, but if you, if you do, if you, if you choose this, if you, if you choose, if you choose, then you will surely die. There's this thing called death. Death had never been known before. Death was, was not anywhere near. And the whole perspective of death, which sometimes it means your heart stops beating, that is one kind of death. But another kind of death is when your dreams are lost. When, when anything perfect becomes anything less than perfect. That is a death. And God said, you, you choose that. Choose that. Then Death has to happen. Death has to come in. As we all know, Adam and Eve chose that tree. They chose with their own free will. They chose evil. They chose rebellion. They chose, they said, no, God. I want this more than I want you. I want me more than you. I want what I want more than you. I want what I see more than you. I want, a, I want, I want it. I want to do it my way. And they rejected God. They rejected his love through that choice, that one simple, simple choice. Sin. Sin. That evil thing, that evil thing came. And friend, you and I were in Adam and Eve when they did that. We were in him. We were in them. We were in them. And our entire makeup was redefined with rebellion and with sin. So God, being perfect in everything, perfect in justice, though, sin screams for justice Anytime anything is done wrong, those balances go out of place. Those balances swing wrong and they have to be righted. And in our culture, there's courts and laws and systems that says if you, if you do this, then, then you have to pay time in jail. And that, time, that is going to right the balances. Or you have to pay them back. Or in any way, in our own court system, you have to right those balances. But our, our system is imperfect. It's imperfect. But God, who operates in perfect love, perfect grace, perfect mercy, and perfect justice at all times, provided a way. Provided a way. And at that moment, if you read in, in Genesis, I believe it's Genesis 3. I don't want to go there quite yet. But if you will open up that, part, that whole section, those first chapters of Genesis, you're going to find that immediately God goes and he calls for them. Where are you? Where are you? And they're hiding in their shame and in their guilt because any time sin happens, there's shame and guilt. They're hiding and God does something. He calls them out and he covers them. He provides a covering. And God's so 
perfect love, in his perfect perfection, he provided a way. He covered them with an animal skin. And I want you to remember that if he got an animal skin, something had to die. Something had to die. An animal died. And that is the first true physical death ever recorded. Was a death to provide a covering for man's sin and shame. And from that moment on, that blood covering, the covering of sheep and goats, all the way up until the time of Jesus, when the fullness of time came, Jesus came, and he offered his blood to be a covering. This covering, God provides a covering in all of his perfection, in his love and his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his faithfulness, and his justice. He knows that true love can't allow sin. That there has to be a covering, there has to be a place to right those wrongs. And it requires our free will, our will, this very same will that got us into this problem to choose now. Choose for God. Choose against God. Do I want God? No, I don't. I want me. Yes, I want God. I, in the midst of this valley of decision to choose to come under his covering. And as long as we choose to stay under his covering, we're in a place of protection. We're in a place of goodness. We're in a place, and we stay there, and we submit our lives to him and our ways and our will, and we learn of him, and we become more and more like him, and we are under the covering. And it's a beautiful thing. We choose to be there. Now we have an accuser. We have an adversary, and his name is Satan. And in Revelation 12, I want you to open up to Revelation 12. Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accusers of our brothers, the accu that, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Satan is the accuser of all things wrong. He accuses. He's constantly accusing. You are this, you're that, you're this, you're that. He's whispering in our ears on a constant basis that you are this, you are that, you aren't good enough, you aren't this, and you are bad, and you are this. And Satan is constantly accusing, constantly accusing. Sometimes when he accuses us, it's not true. How many of you have been accused and you've heard that accusatory voice inside of you that you're no good? How many of you heard that it's inside of you that, that you're not strong enough or that you're not this or you're that or you are really dumb or this accusing voice inside of you? Sometimes it's not true. And we can easily shut that up because we know truth. But sometimes it's real. Sometimes we really have blown it. Sometimes we really do mess up. And at any given time, when God, no, when, when the enemy, sorry, when the enemy finds into, looks into humanity and he sees where there is sin that is not under the covering, 
He has a legal right to accuse. He has a legal right to come against us. He has a legal right. The word accuser, it's actually a courtroom term. In our courts today, there are many players. There's the judge, there's the jersey, jury, jersey, the jury, and there's the accuser. There's the one that says, you did this. That is the role of Satan in our lives. He brings condemnation, and that condemnation comes unto death. But there's another player in the courtroom. There's another player, and that's the defense. Jesus. Hebrews 9, it talks about Jesus being our mediator, being our lawyer, being our defense, coming before the Father all the time, defending us, bringing his blood, coming to the Father on our behalf. Jesus. Who is this Jesus? What gave him the right to do this? How can he do this? How can he have any, any sway in the courts of heaven against the truth of our sin and our brokenness. Who is this Jesus? Was he a good teacher? Who was he? What was he? What gives him the right? What gives him the authority? Jesus was fully God and fully man. And in his manhood, he lived on this earth for 33 years without sin. He had a free will. He had the ability to choose, and the entire 33 years of his life, he chose to, to glorify the Father. He never chose to walk according to his flesh or according to his desires. He never once sinned, never ever once, and that perfect human being, that human being that actually did it. Even though we try, we try, we try, we try, we, we, don't, we don't succeed. This human being actually did it. And that human being was the only human being on the face of the planet in the human race that did not deserve death. He did not because he had never sinned. So this is what makes it so amazing. Jesus chose of his own free will to die. Not because he deserved it, not because he had an accuser before him, not because he was sentenced to death because of his behavior. He chose out of that glorious free will, the first human to be able to do this, he chose to lay his life down. He laid down on that cross to be crucified, the cross, the cross. There isn't a more universal symbol across the face of the planet than the cross. There isn't a more universal understanding of and story told than of the crucifixion. Why, why is it so powerful? Let me tell you. 
The cross is a place of, of intersection. It's, it's two pieces of wood that come together like this. And in the very center of it, there's this intersecting place. And I will tell you that all of eternity intersected at that cross. The cross, the cross where the cruelest of executions and death reigned instead at that moment of time as Jesus hung on that cross, life conquered. And it's not just life, it was abundant life, excessive life. Death came in its hardest and most cruelest way, but life overcame. The cross, the cross is a place where hate instigated a greatest evil in mankind, but instead love completed the greatest deed. This is the cross. You ask me what happened on the cross. Why is it so, so famous? I will tell you also that the cross is where violence seemed to have succeeded, but instead it's where peace was unleashed that will pass every bit of understanding. This is the cross. The cross where all sin, all sin that had ever happened through the human race from the past, all sin that was happening at that moment on Golgotha right there, around there with the screaming and the yelling and the hatred and the murder, all of sin present and all of sin yet to be imagined in the human race. And you and I all know just a small smidgen of the sin that has been imagined in the human mind since that day on the cross. All the way through the future, all of that sin was gathered from the past, the present, and the future was gathered and placed on Jesus. At that moment, on the cross, every sin you've ever committed, every sin that you've done in your past, every sin you're in the middle of right now, and every sin that you could ever possibly imagine was placed on that cross. There's not one left out. You have no place in your humanity to say, yeah, but I'm so bad, I don't think it's good enough. It was all placed on him at that cross, on that cross, Yet, there on that cross, there was a purity restored that takes us back to that place of just if I had never sinned. This is some of the things that happened on that cross. That's why this cross is so vital and so famous and so lasting. That cross where the brokenness of all things, where all of the shattered perfection of everything on that cross comes back into complete wholeness, seamless and complete once again. On that cross, when all seemed lost, all was gained. On that cross, when destruction was apparent, restoration was initiated for you and for me. On that cross, where defeat seemed certain, complete victory was wrought. This is the power of the cross. This is what we base everything on. The justice that came on that cross, 
I want you to turn to Romans. Romans 8. Verses 31 through 39. I want you to hear this. What then shall we say in response to this? Uh, everything that I have just said to you. Everything that I have just described to you of what happened on that cross. Everything. What shall we say in response? That if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies now, just as if I'd have never sinned. Who is he now that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep leading to the slaughter. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor the powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the power, my friend, of the cross. That is where we stand. And on the night before he was betrayed, before the cross, it, the cross was sitting before him. It was before it happened. He told us to remember him. To remember his death. Not, not to remember him necessarily in all of his miracles or in his teachings or in the great things and the love and the hugging of children, yet those were all ever so real. He commanded us to remember his death. Remember what I just described to you because he knew that that is where our power lies. On a personal, personal level, we all need to take our free will and use it. We all do. And we all have to take our free will and choose God. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Oh my, there's that word again. He, God is right there. Jesus, Paul is combining faithfulness, the faithfulness of God with his justice. And how do we bring just balance back into our sin? It's by confessing our sin to him. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Not if he feels like it, not if it's not too bad. He will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You have to use your free will. You have to do this. And so we confess our sins and, and we do that and, and we realize ourselves up with the God of the universe and we make things right, right here. 
And then we live life and it affects everything. But this is our individual mandate. I want to take a shift now. And I want to share with you that we are all also a part of other groups that we are, we have responsibility for. We are responsible for us. There's family, there's church, there's other gatherings. But I want to take a moment right now and focus on nations. Because every one of us are a part of a nation as well. So how does all this come into an understanding and how does this all affect that? We are a part of a nation. Our nation here, where I stand, is the United States of America. This is my nation. This is the nation I'm from. I actually had dual citizenship for a long time because I was born in Guatemala. But that one's, you know, my, my little baby passport says Guatemala. But I am an American citizen. I have a nation, and my nation is America. Everyone has a nation. And most of the people I'm talking to probably are in America. But there might be some of you, your nationality is not American. Your nationality is another nation. And I want you all to know that God drew up the nations, Nations are God's idea. They are a structure. They are a grouping. They are very, very vital in God's economy. God loves the nations. They were his idea. The nations. What is a nation? A nation is a large body of people. And these people all have a common descent, a common history, a common language, and they have a common land. A common piece of real estate. They are given a piece. They have claim to, shall we say, a piece of God's creation. They are responsible for a landmass, a geograph geographical location. That's a nation. Now, there's some nations out there that don't have geography, but that's why it's difficult to define them. And they're fighting for land. Because land is very important to being a nation, okay? So land and nation, land and nation. I, I want you to kind of understand that. Our behavior as a nation upon the land is very essential. I'm going to take a little bit of a side note here. Our behavior, if you read, um, so it's around Genesis 7 where the, um, the flood comes in. And God describes the evil in the world at that time, before the flood in Noah's time. It, it says very plainly there about how the earth was filled with violence. And the connotation there is not necessarily like there was a lot of busyness on top of the earth by humans being violent. No, the earth had actually absorbed that violence. It's like when you microwave spaghetti in a Tupperware and the red sauce absorbs into the bowl. It's, um, it's, just, it's a very, very interesting concept that the land absorbs and, and is infected by those of us human beings and our choices that, that are on top of that land. Very, very interesting. Uh, when uh, Cain killed Abel, God came to Cain and he said, the ground cries out with your brother's blood. And also we hear in the New Testament where the, all of creation yearns for the revelation of the sons of God. The earth is a created thing. It has 
an interaction more than just a dead rock laying there. Now, I'm not calling it God. You know, I'm not going to go that far, but I am going to say it's vital. So we have this, these nations, and inside of this nation, there's a large body of people. What is a large body of people? A large body of a lot of free wills that, that get to choose. They get to choose all sorts of things. And every single nation has a God call and mandate on that nation. And it, it is up to the inhabitants of that nation to choose God, to align their life, and live well, come into unity, and do the will of God. Now, the Tower of Babel, if you remember back to there, I know I'm kind of jumping all around, so I'm kind of counting on your Bible knowledge, but the Tower of Babel, God called those people, and he told them very specifically, now go out and spread out and inhabit the earth. They chose to stay together. They chose to develop a nation, and then they chose to unify all around their wills, all around the plan to build something to make their name famous, and God said, no, I can't have that. So there's this, this understanding that nations can come together and band together against God. And nations can come together and band together for God. And nations can live sometimes for God and sometimes not for God. The nation of Israel, the whole Old Testament is all about me, 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 up and down, good, bad, good, bad, constantly. But nations are, they're an entity that can be changed. They're an entity that can change and shift its focus. Psalms 2, verses 1 and 2 is, uh, talks about uh, the importance God has for the nations. I'm going to read it off the screens. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying... Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven, though, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. That's as far as I want to go with that one. So I just want you to see how important the nations are. And then after all of that, and we, we kind of heard there about the nations roiling and railing against God, Revelation 22, go to the end of the book as opposed to the beginning of the book. Go to the end of the book here. Revelation 22, verse one, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb and of the lamb and down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So that tells me nations are important to God. Nations can choose against God. Nations can choose for God. Nations can be turned. Nations can change. Nations will be healed in heaven. In heaven, when all of this is over with, God will heal the hearts of the nations. God loves nations. I'm telling you, there's a move right now over the last couple of years to tear down nations, uh, the, the um, specific nations, and become globalized. Where we are to not have borders, where we're not to have, um, uh, and everything is supposed to become more globalized and, and coming into oneness. And I don't believe it's, you know, I, I'm not huge on all of that. I don't understand it all. But I will say that God loves nations. And, and I'm not seeing in the Bible where that, that's what God's calling us to do. He loves the nations. 
And there's a there's something good in the sovereignty of nations. Now, I want to learn more about this. And I'm told, but this is what I believe. The nations, our nation, your nation, has got to become very, very important to you because it is a piece of our world. So um, let's talk about, um, so God, nations are great and important. They can be godly. They can be ungodly. But more than what the nation is, there's an importance laid on with uh, the godliness within. That that has and carries with it a very strong importance, the godliness within that nation. I want to take your attention now to Sodom and Gomorrah. I know I'm kind of jumping all around different stories, but I'm really trusting you're going to be able to follow me. Sodom and Gomorrah was a city-state. Okay, and back in those days, nations weren't huge. They were centered around a city. So Sodom and Gomorrah, they were two cities, they were close together, and they were similar. They were very much alike. And God was going to destroy them because this was a city nation, a city. Uh, these are cities that had gone ungodly. So as a whole, they had stepped into massive amounts of sin. And there so he, God sent down an angel to Abram, and Abraham and him were, they were having this conversation, and Abraham said, God, if there's a hundred righteous in that, if there's a hundred, will you save it? And he says, yeah, sure. If there's a hundred, I'll save it. And he's like, mm, how about 50? Yes, I will save that nation. I will preserve that nation. If there's 50 righteous people inside of that nation, I will save it. What if there's 20? And he worked his way down, and he came to 10 the number 10. Abraham said, if there's 10 righteous in that city, will you save it? And God said, yes, I will save it if there's 10. But when he went in to visit the city, he could only find four. So why wouldn't he save it for four if he was going to save it for 10? Well, there is a, there's a, a, a significance to 10. 10 is the amount that God has set to uh, build and to establish what's a synagogue, okay? So a grouping of people, it takes 10 in an area to establish a synagogue. What's a synagogue? What's the, what's the point of that? A synagogue is an assembly where 10 righteous people come together, 10 people who love God are able to come together and meet together, and they talk about the Word of God. They talk about the Torah, the law of God, where they have, um, in assemblies, they have the power to speak and to sway and to influence and if there was 10, they could establish a synagogue. God could not find 10. There was no establishment of a group of 10 inside of Sodom and Gomorrah. There, in other words, those four were not able to come together to establish that. But if there had been 10, then you would have found an assembly together where those people could come together and now be a remnant for that city. Now, I know that the Bible says where two or three or more are gathered, I am there in their midst. Absolutely. But there is a ruling strength with 10 or more to be able to establish that synagogue. There's this remnant concept inside of a nation that if that remnant will continue to come together and persevere if that remnant will stand, if that remnant, that group, that assembly, that coming together will stand for that nation and intercede for that nation, that nation can be turned. 
And at this time and in this hour, I would say to you, the nations of the earth are being shaken. This virus, this pandemic, whether it is good or bad or really what it is or if it's all a hoax, I don't know. Everybody's talking all sorts of things. But I will tell you one thing. It is affecting every nation. I will tell you one thing. It is affecting our nation. It is affecting me. It is affecting everything. This virus is a plague and a pestilence like the Bible talks about quite often. Plagues and pestilences being sent out into nations and over uh, you know, certain nations or all nations or sometimes even over all the known world at that time where they, they uh, indicate all sent because sin has ramped up in those places and Satan has a legal right to come against us in that area. And as people return back to God and return back underneath the covering, they become that remnant and then they become a driving force of that nation. Plagues and pestilences, we're in the middle of something, people. I don't understand it entirely. I don't get it entirely. I wish I did. I wish I could stand up here and tell you exactly, thus saith the Lord. But I do know something's going on. And I do know what the Bible tells us to do in the middle of these kinds of situations. I do know the power of the cross. I do know the power of a remnant. And I do know what God's plans are for good and for life and life more abundantly. And that is his ultimate plan for the healing of all these nations. Second Chronicles 7, such a... a um, such a life-giving verse. The understanding of this, Solomon has just dedicated his temple and, and uh, sacrificed, I believe, a thousand oxen. I can't remember how. It was just an amazing church service. I'm telling you what, everything was just, everybody was singing right on key. Everything was cool. Biggest moment of all. And God comes to uh, Solomon in his, uh, at night and says, I have heard your prayer. This is verse uh, 11. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself. But when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. That is a mouthful. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Our land needs to be healed. I have four things I want to call us to as I wrap up here. I have four things. First of all, a call to prayer. People of God, I call you to prayer. This house has called you to prayer for the 27 years that we have been in existence. This church has been a house of prayer. We have, I could literally say that every service, somehow there's a call to prayer to you. As the sheep of this church, those within my hearing, I am sending out once again a call to prayer. And I need your prayer. I want to encourage our prayer to be twofold. First of all, we have to come with repentance. 
As that remnant is able to repent for the sins of that nation, for the sins of that land, just like that verse is that I told you, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Well, our nation has sinned. I have to do that for my own self right now at all times. If I confess my sins, he will forgive me. He will forgive me and cover me and put grace and mercy on me. And I don't have to live under condemnation. I can live in freedom. I can live with so much grace and life and joy, me personally. But I am that living inside of a nation. And so I have the power and the strength to do that for my nation as well. And I am calling you, people of God, to not only get right with the Lord yourself at all times and live in his grace. I'm not trying to put a heavy on you like you got to walk around in sackcloth and ashes. No, that's beyond that. We've found God in, in our midst beyond that as well. But it is all the time. But I also want you to come into a place where you will confess the sins of this nation. For our nation needs to be healed. Our nation is in the throes of a judgment. All nations are. There's something going on. It's affecting our economy. It's affecting every soul in our nation. And I'm calling you to pray for the nation. I'm calling you to pray confess the sins of our nation because wherever there's sin remember we told you there's an accuser and he comes against us he rails against us but whenever there's a sector of sin that is real that has not been confessed the enemy the accuser has a legal right to bring that against us and it must be dealt with It must be brought into justice. How do we do that? How do we do that? If we don't apply the blood of Jesus to it, then we're going to have to pay the great price of judgment and wrath. And I am here to say that you will find me every day coming before the Lord and repenting for the sins of our nation. Repenting for every blood, drop of blood spilled on our ground in the form of murder. Repenting for every shred of rebellion that's found in the hearts. Every violent thing that's ever taken place on our ground, present, past, future. Father God, I pray, I pray, I I confess the sins of this nation in sexual perversion. It's vast. It's great. I don't take part in it. But I am in a nation that does. Therefore, I will take on the burden and the responsibility to confess the sins of this nation in every way, shape, and form. God is all of this. God is the God of the happy dance of he is so good and he is so wonderful and he is love, but he is also the God of humility. And we must come into that place at times. We must be good at doing all of this, church. I'm not calling us to fall into any ditch on either side. I'm calling us to the center that uses all of it all together. 
we must be just as good at confessing sin as we are at confessing his promises. For judgment will come. He is a just God. And, and he uses different things to bring judgment. And his judgment is always to bring salvation. His judgment is always sent not to condemn us, but to, to convict us and to turn us and to bring us back into alignment with him. If Dwayne and I as parents had never judged the actions of our children, they would have turned into brats. There's a piece of it. We need correction. And we have to embrace that, church. The judgment of sin comes. And it's coming. But it's the hand of repentance that stays the hand of judgment. And at the point of meeting of repentance and judgment, there is a, a gap right there. And that's where the cross stands. And that's where the work done on the cross begins to flow. And that's where the blood of Jesus washes our sins that we've brought to the cross through repentance. And he cleanses us of all of our unrighteousness and all of our sins. And it's, he makes us as if we'd never sinned. That's where grace and mercy belongs. That's what it's all about. The place between judgment and repentance. I'm calling you to prayer. A prayer of repentance and then a prayer of intercession. Standing, never giving him any rest. As it says in Isaiah, don't give me any rest. Come with your petitions. Come with your needs. Come with intercession. Interceding for salvations like never before. I call the billion whole soul harvest in, in Jesus' name. So a call to prayer. Secondly, a call to communion. I am asking that you as the body of Christ would begin to break communion on a regular basis by yourself. We try to do it here at church, but we can't gather. I'm asking you every day, maybe in the evening, maybe Maybe in the morning, fix yourself a communion and do it in remembrance of his death. Well, why? That's so gory. I don't want to remember his death. No, that's where the power is. That's where the work was done. And the power of God who raised him back to life now lives within us so that we can live. I'm calling you to communion, church. I'm calling you to fellowship. I'm calling you to seek one another. I am also calling you to courage, to not fear but to stand. Revelation 12, 11 and 12 finishes by saying that they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Fear will cause you to run. Fear will cause you to hide, to shrink back. Fear will cause you to do everything negative. I'm calling you to courage. Let's get out our cup and our bread. I know I'm running short on time. Father God, in Jesus' name, I praise you right now that you hung on that cross, that your body was broken for me, that as your body was broken, you became the bread of life for me to eat and be strengthened and to be healed. 
your body. And I praise you for that. Now take the cup, the blood spilled, the blood spilled for your behalf, the cleansing, covering, washing, uh, erasing, moving place where grace finds its mark. We will continue to break communion, remembering your death and the power of your death and what happened. Oh God, we love you. We praise you. We repent right now. We understand there's been sins committed. I didn't commit them. I didn't. Or maybe I have. But Father God, I stand in place as a remnant over this nation. And I ask you to just forgive us Forgive us, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us. And God, I cry out that your judgment that is being wrought in our nation will be a judgment unto salvation. I praise you and I thank you. And I say to Satan, you accuser of the brethren, you will be overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of my testimony in Jesus' name. You are mighty. God, you are powerful. You are greater than anything. And Father God, I pray a, an end to the pestilence. I cry, I cry out for an end to this plague as Moses ran between the people and the plague that was running through the camp rampant because of their rebellion and his intercession and his incense carriers that he carried through there. He drew a line and said, no more. We do the same in Jesus' name. And God, I declare right now, your healing power in this nation. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for every church across the planet, Lord God. And I declare right now that churches are banding together in ways never thought before in Jesus' name. And your body is unified even though we can't come together in this sanctuary. We are unified as one body as we take of your body. In Jesus' name, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part. We love you. We are here for you. Go online and let us pray for you. If you need prayer, click on that. We've got it kind of set up today. If Lord willing and the creek doesn't rise for our instant prayer warriors for you, click on that. Let's get some prayer going. Call up one another. Wednesday night, Zoom prayer meeting with us. Communion daily. Prayer without ceasing. Amen. We love you, church.